in the year 155 yesterday, Polycarp died being burned at the stake. He was born around the year 70, and he evidently became a Christian before he was 30 years old, and he learned the gospel sometime in his youth from the apostle John. John lived really long time. He lived to be super old. So he discipled this young man, Polycarp. We have Polycarp's letters, and he was one of the earliest pastors who we have writings and his, his speaking, and he was constantly exhorting Christians to avoid heresy. Polycarp, in turn, mentored a young man who was Irenaeus, who was my favorite of the early church fathers. In John's Apocalypse, Christ had warned the church at Smyrna that they were about to face persecution, and he promised a crown of life to everyone who was faithful in the face of that persecution, even unto death. And Polycarp probably encouraged the flock in Smyrna with those words, and then the Romans hauled several of them off to face death by wild animals or fire, and soon he had to apply that same thing to himself. Not satisfied with the blood of their first victims, the Roman mob called for Polycarp's death. His friends tried to persuade him to hide, so he, he went with them to a farmhouse, and while he was praying, Polycarp had a vision, and he turned and said to those who were with him, I must be burned alive. By torturing two slave boys, the authorities figured out where he was, and so they sent men to arrest him, and he refused this time, since he had prayed and he had that vision, he refused to flee. He said, God's will be done. And he ordered for food to be brought to the soldiers, and he asked the soldiers to give him an extra hour to pray before they took him. His prayer was so impressive that the soldiers questioned their orders to arrest such a good man. And they gave him two extra, they gave him two hours instead of one, before leading him back to town. The magistrate ordered Polycarp to renounce Christ and instead give obedience to Caesar as Lord. Because that, of course, when you say Jesus is Lord nowadays, people, don't, people think you're just talking about a spiritual thing. They don't think you're saying an actual political thing. Back then, you were making a clean break with the Roman Empire. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. So they commanded him to renounce Christ and give obedience to Caesar as Lord. Polycarp answered, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. The faith is received. It is, the faith is received and submitted to. It's not invented. It's not constructed. You don't choose what you want to believe based on what you wish were true. There's such a thing as reality. And scripture tells us God's reality. And we don't tell it what it's supposed to mean. It tells us what to think, what to believe. And so the, the, the struggle or the work is to be in the book, to let the worldview of the book, to let the details of the book push us around. It's extremely normal to, to find 
huge swaths of the biblical teaching offensive because of our culture. Now, we don't think that. We think we are objective and we know the truth. And we don't realize how much of what we think and, how, and what we hold comes from our culture. I'll give you this example. All the way back in college, I was the only one in my senior class who, said, who, who questioned whether women should be pastors. Hey, it's Future Tim. I'm editing this now. I just wanted to clarify, I am not asserting that I don't believe females should preach or can be called to preach. I am simply saying that back when I was in college, I was distrustful of the distorting influence of culture and wary of us squeezing the Bible into our preferred mold. Instead, I wanted us to allow the Bible to squeeze us into its mold. Yes, my thinking has developed and changed since those years, but I wholeheartedly affirm my reasons for landing where I did at that time. Now, you know how I feel, right? Men and women are equal. In Christ, they're equal, equal dignity, equal value, equal worth. Go all the way back to Genesis. God divides his image in two. You have to have men and women together to even express the image of God correctly, right? But my whole class seemed to think that I was sexist because I questioned their assumptions. And the reason I questioned their assumptions was because it seemed to me that scripture was in one location and then all 2,000 years of church history were with that scripture. But then in the 1960s, Americans changed their mind and everyone before us is viewed as sexist and wrong. And I'll put it to you this way. On Judgment Day, our actions will be measured, our words will be measured, our motives will be measured. And some people who are doing the right thing are going to be doing it for the wrong reason, and they get no reward. And some people who are doing the wrong thing will be doing it for the right reasons, and they'll get the reward as if they had done the right thing. I'm more interested in the process you follow having incredible surrender to the Lord and integrity in the way you engage the scripture. So my friends grow up in a culture that says, men and women, there's no distinctions between their roles because there's no distinction between their values. And then they come to the scripture and they go, ooh, how are we gonna make this fit with what we want it to say? And I'm saying that process didn't have integrity. And so what I've been doing, I've been preaching through Romans to myself to make sure that not just in a generic sense I'm preaching the gospel, but, but verse by verse, the logic of Paul. I want, I want to hear his logic. I don't want to have me tell him what he's, what he's allowed to tell me based on what I wish it said. I want to modify my thinking to match the Bible. So digging into the word with the attitude of if Jesus is Lord, then what that means is his scripture is my authority. So I'm submitting myself to his word if he's Lord. And, and anyone who claims to have Jesus as Lord, it doesn't, somebody's been a Christian five, six, 10 years, their whole life, and, and admit they've never read through the whole Bible, it's the book of God. 
If, the, if you have a hunger for the Lord and you can watch hours of TV a day, but you can't, handle, you can't handle 30 minutes of sitting with God and like just turning the pages and reading to get the story in you, to get the worldview in you, to get the values in you, to get the messages in you, to get the burden of the Lord in you. So it's extremely important to me that what I believe and what I preach and what I live matches this because we're going to stand before Jesus on judgment day. You know what we're going to be judged by? Not some random thing that's not available. Jesus said, my words on judgment day, my words. I won't have to judge you, says Jesus. My words will judge. It would be a terrible teacher who on the final exam, there's questions that they never talked about in class. They weren't in their lectures and they weren't in the book. A really, really good teacher, a really, really good teacher prepares their students to pass every test with straight A's. A really good teacher, if you pay close attention in class and you read the book and you apply your heart, you should be very well prepared for the, for the final exam. And he's not gonna, it's not gonna be some shock what happens on Judgment Day. He's already given us his will and it's in his book. So I've been fact-checking my gospel according, according to this thing. And it's been interesting because some things that it's like, is scripture clear? Here's a big word for the kids. Perspicuity. There's folk that think, oh, the Bible, the Bible's a huge mystery. I better just let Pastor Tim interpret it for me. That's why we pay you because the Bible's just so confusing. Well, uh, the Bible has lots of confusing things in it. But why did God give us a Bible? Paul says to Timothy, from infancy, you've known the scriptures that are able to make you what? Wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And he talks about the scripture being extremely useful. It's all, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for training, for teaching, for exhorting, for equipping, that the man of God or woman of God can be, can be trained in righteousness, built up, right? So the point of Scripture is clear. The point of all Scripture is to prepare you to be saved through Jesus and live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So simple. It's not, it's not rocket science. He gave you a book so you could walk with Jesus and please Jesus in life. You'd know God through Jesus. And to that end, the main and the plain is very understandable. The main and the plain, right? There are some difficult things. But I've noticed people obsess over those difficult things to trip themselves up sometimes instead. Like, love God, love people. It's not. It's not crazy. The main and the plain. Who is God? God is love. What are you called to do? You're called to love him and love people. The average believer just like I believe like a big name prophet is usually less credible than an average Christian who's, who's hearing God in community. I trust the discernment of the average Christian more than the big name prophet who has a stage and a platform in a national ministry. I trust the prophetic anointing on the average Christian to actually discern whether the big name prophet is, is on or off track when they deliver a word to a congregation or to themselves. In a similar way, in a similar way, God has put the anointing of the Holy Spirit 
on the body of Christ. There, I, heard a, I heard about a big name megachurch preacher who stopped believing in hell and his church disappeared. Oh, they must be so judgmental. You know, he just was so cutting edge and brave, wasn't he? And I thought to myself, that's one interpretation. I'll give you another one. They have the Holy Spirit and they own Bibles, y'all. And they're looking in their book and they're going, I think he's making stuff up now. I had another, another preacher, an, a, another theologian, making fun of Jesus' teaching, if I can say it this way. Jesus teaches that when the Son of Man comes in his glory with his holy angels with him, he will gather the nations together and he will separate the people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And then he describes the things that are goat-like behavior. You didn't do it to the least of these brothers of mine. And he describes things that are sheep-like behavior. You did it to the least of these brothers of mine. And these goats go into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these sheep come into the everlasting joy of the Father. Now, the preacher I heard, he made fun of that concept and he called it a soul sort. And just kind of <laughs> fools who believe these silly antiquated ideas that everyone's going to be sorted into bins, worthless fools over here and all oh, wonderful saints, just a soul sort. So he's labeled it soul sort because when you label something, it's usually easier than to mock it. You can, you can parody it. You can make fun of it. The passages of, in the New Testament that teach very, very clearly and plainly that certain behaviors are inconsistent with being in Christ, idolatry, greed, fits of anger, homosexual acts, these kinds of things. Those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, what the, you know how our, some modern theologians talk about those clear passages of Scripture? They say, oh, those are clobber passages. You guys use those to clobber us gay Christians. You clobber us with them. See how, the, see, you can label it. It's God's word. It's God's word, just like the sheep and the goat passages, God's word to be submitted to. I don't get to make up what's true. I get to submit to what I've been handed as truth. I want to submit to Jesus. He submitted fully to the scripture, you guys. Jesus submitted fully to the scripture, even when he didn't like it. You go, what do you mean? He's Jesus. Why wouldn't he like it? Because it called him to go and die. Isaiah 53 is clear. Can you imagine being Jesus, reading Isaiah 53 and realizing it's about you and realizing that your calling is to be the suffering servant who dies for the sins of the people to redeem them? Can't be a fun moment. But he submits fully to the word of God. Jesus submits fully to the word of God. And if Jesus himself, who, you, who we call Lord, submits to the Bible, because the spirit in us will never contradict what he already has authorized as his will, right? That's, how, that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to know this so we can learn to recognize his voice because he doesn't contradict himself. If Jesus reverences the Bible, surely the Christian has to be reverencing the Bible, not getting away from it, not escaping it, not improving on it, not adding to it, not taking away from it. No, submitting to it and allowing it to take shape in fruitfulness. So that means portions of the texts, portions of the texts, our culture will love and celebrate. 
Right now, you, the, the, the Old Testament God, which by the way is the same as the New Testament God, loves when we care for the widow, care for the orphan, care for the refugee, care for the poor. God loves that. You know what? There's a lot of folk in our culture that love that. You know what else he loves? When you are faithful to the spouse of your youth, when you flee sexual immorality and greed. Now, our culture's like, yeah, greed is wrong. But when you start talking about sexuality, they go, oh, hold up now. God surely wants me happy. Surely God wants me happy. I had, I had a friend ask me, can I do this thing that I want to do? And it was sexually immoral by my interpretation. And they said, Pastor Tim, tell me what to do. And I said, I'm not the authority and I'm not going to judge you on judgment day. What I need for you to do, what I, what I need for you to do, I need you to get in this book, interpret it as well as you can, and then obey your understanding of this book. That's what I need you to do. I don't need me to tell you what to do. Standing here, because I gave him the resources. I gave him the resource of the denomination, what I, what I believe in our little creedal doctrinal statements. And they were very clear. But my denomination's not going to be his judge on judgment day, and neither am I. He's going to stand alone before Jesus on judgment day. So I, I said, please study the scripture. Come to your understanding, your honest understanding. And then follow your conscience as your conscience is informed in the light of Scripture. He comes back to me in a couple weeks. Might have been a week. I said, what'd you discover? He goes, ah, oh, I just can't find any loopholes. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally what he said. I can't find any loopholes. I even called this radio ministry pastor and they said there's not loopholes either because I said, surely I'm missing something. This is what he said, guys. Surely God wants me happy. Pastor Tim, surely God wants me happy. And I can't obey this and still be happy. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I guess I'll just sin and then get forgiveness later. And that's what he did. But there's consequences for that. I don't know what the consequences for that are going to be. But I know there are consequences for that. Both in time and if he doesn't repent, in eternity. <sighs> this feels a little heavy. And then sometimes there's just a high price tag. Do you know what I mean? To obedience. Jesus... Uh, is constantly leveraging a real kingdom, an age that is to come, an eternal age that is to come. And his vision, at least in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Matthew's version of the Beatitudes is slightly, a, a slightly different way of saying it than Luke. Luke's version of the Beatitudes is basically, blessed are you forever, when you have to suffer for the kingdom here, there's going to be a dramatic reversal. And the martyrs under the throne in, in the book of Revelation, John says, who are all these people that are right up next to the throne? Who are these folks? You know, the person speaking, he goes, oh, these are the martyrs who, who were beheaded for their testimony in Jesus during the great tribulation. Oh, guys. 
There's those in the kingdom who will be the greatest. And there's those who seem great now, but in the kingdom, they'll be the least. And this scares me a little, and I don't mean a bad scare, a good scare. Teachers who don't turn God's people away from sin will be the least. Jesus says, when you don't teach people to obey my commands, you'll be the least in the kingdom. In other words, teachers who tell the church and the culture what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, will be the least in the kingdom. We'll be saved, but just by the skin of our teeth. And we'll be the least in the... What does it mean to be the least in the kingdom, you guys? I don't know, because I haven't been there. But I know it's not as good as being the, the greatest in the kingdom. What does it mean to be sitting on thrones in the kingdom to come, like the apostles will be, because of their great sacrifices and great struggle, great... Like, they died for Jesus. They gave up everything. And Jesus says, y'all are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. So what's our responsibility in the kingdom going to be? I don't know, but I know it will have some relationship to our faithfulness here on earth. My job is to get people ready for eternity. Not to grow this church. To get people ready for eternity to live a life so close to the Lord, so in love with the Lord, so unstained by the world, that their lives are pleasing to the Lord. And that when they pass through that flame on that day, there's there's something left. There's enough of him in what we've done, what we've built, who we've become, that he sees his own image. It was him living in and through through us. We We were surrendered. We were yielded in this life. And as soon as I say that, some people are going to say, but I thought we were saved by grace. You are saved by grace. The question is how much, how much fruit will you bear now that you are saved by grace? How much grace will you partner with? How much grace will you let shape you and form you? How many, how, like how much treasure in heaven? Mark and I are, I guess he's kind of functionally our overseer now because Steve's basically retired. So Mark and I went to Applebee's a couple days ago. And we talked about this and we kind of had a little disagreement about it, which was fun. It was a good disagreement. His thing was treasure in heaven is when you, you give, you, 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 you're generous with your stuff for the sake of Jesus. You help people so much that it detaches your heart from an unhealthy, blinding, deadening connection to the money and stuff. That that by giving to the poor or those in need, you get to share in the joy because it's more blessed, it's more happy to give than to receive. And that frees your heart to be more connected, more rooted in heaven. And when your treasure is in heaven, you bear much better fruit on earth and you experience God so much more open, with so much more open of a heart, right? So he doesn't view it as rewards later in heaven. He views treasure in heaven more as your treasure is in heaven and so you more effectively reflect heaven in your life on earth. Now he's right, and I brought up my counter argument. But Mark, what about the thrones? What about the greatest in the kingdom? What about the least in the kingdom? What about those beaten with a few blows who disobeyed, but they didn't have as much light and awareness? But Jesus says those who knew the good and didn't do it were beaten with many blows. So it's not just heaven that is unequal. 
Not everyone experiences the same thing in hell. Hell is tailor-made. Of course, the Catholics knew this, and Dante poetically had a whole thing called the Inferno, where the worst part of hell was actually cold, not hot. Right? Of course, that's not in the Bible. It's very creative and very helpful and very scary, and you probably shouldn't read it to your kids. <laughs> but I did tell my, my boys about uh, Polycarp being burned at the stake because it made me weep for the beauty of 86 years I've served him and he's never done me wrong. That part, didn't that get you? You're going to make me cry just for the beauty of the Jesus you know. So I, I'm not trying to freak people out, but your life actually matters. Listen to this one from Jesus. Listen to this one from Jesus. You, I tell you the truth, you will have to give an account. I did some repenting on this one today. I tell you the truth, you will have to answer for every word you speak. Every careless word you speak. And I, and I, I was meditating on that and I said, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for the cuss words, for the foolish, coarse joking like Ephesians talks about. And I was thinking all the way back in my life, you know? You know it's okay to bring up stuff that's already under the blood. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to get really, really free. And I said, ugh. And forgive me for, for all those times that I've talked bad about people, that I've judged people. I remember one time I was, I was at an event and the presence of God was so heavy and so thick. And I went out to the car and I'm with my friend and he starts trying to bring up, bring up, he starts to complain and grumble about people. I couldn't stomach it. I was in the presence of the Lord, the pure, holy presence, the weight of the, of the manifest. You know, there's three kinds of presence, right? Three kinds of presence of the Lord. What's this one? What's the, what's the verse I'm thinking of? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, if I go to hell, you're there. I can't escape you. Okay, but that's one kind of presence, right? There's another kind of presence. I think it's 117. I had notes. We're not using them. Here it is, 13. Ha-ha! So the first kind of God's presence, it's everywhere. Nobody can escape it. The second kind of God's presence is the indwelling seal of the Spirit that confirms your mind. That's for the people of God. And then there's a third kind of spirit. Acts chapter 4, and the place where they prayed was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. That's a different kind of presence. Or, Acts, or Luke chapter 5, and the, pre, and the power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. So there's three kinds, right? Because people go, Jesus, we just invite you to come. And then people, again, they can mock that truth. How can you invite God to come? He's everywhere. Psalm 139. Plus, he, we brought him. You guys are so dumb praying for him to come. I'm not a fan. Can you tell? I'm not a fan of mocking Bible truth. And I think it's a kind of a sign of you really don't know your Bible well enough yet. But the third kind is this sort of empowering. We call it the manifest presence. It's like... It's, we, sometimes we call it the, the glory enters the room. Remember Stan, actually, he was, remember Stan, he was talking to me about, like when the glory comes, you can, you, you can barely stand up. 
Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, but you were, you were. This has been like a year or two ago. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've felt the glory fall, like where I'm just like bent over and can't even stand up straight. But then there's other feelings. I, I don't know if that's the right word. Well, I mean, of course there are, because the empowering presence is going to feel different. Has a function. Right? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me for. That's what I was going to say. I think more or less what the healing is about your And there's a, have you been in a room when there's a prophetic revelation yeah. thing and all of a sudden you can't miss and you can like walk up to strangers and know what they do for a job and what their father did when he was blah, blah, blah with this, that, and the other and what's going on in their business with their kids and stuff and you're like just saying it because you just know it and they go, who are you? And I go, I'm just a guy who's in the room with Bob Hazlitt tonight. But if you walk in it enough, it can become yours, I've noticed. It's really weird. But my point is this. I was in a room where God's, God's manifest presence, I think I'm going to go with manifest as well. God's manifest presence. Now, by the way, this right here, you can stir up the gift that is in you through the laying on of hands and you can make, you can, you can be faithful to pray in the spirit and worship and sing and be in such a union with Jesus that you become a little, a little zone of this. Believe me. And you don't need to depend on this People who are dependent on conferences because this is there, I go, come on, man, there's more. Plus, you get a whole church full of people who are walking this flamed up. It creates this. You know, God's not blocking revival. He's in the mood for his kingdom to come at all times. What we call revival is just an increase of his will on earth. And he's always in the mood for his will to be done on earth as in heaven. You know, he loves to pour out his spirit. He poured his spirit on Jesus without measure. He'd love to do the same to us. He's not the weak link in the chain. Our lack of hunger, our lack of faith, our lack of openness, all the idols in our heart and the hard hearts. And it's just the stuff, you know? But I was, in a, I was in a context where we were just in God for like days. And then my buddy starts saying bad stuff about people. Now, not super bad, but just grumbling, pointing, complaining, just little fault finding. And the spirit, like a fear of the Lord hit me. And I wanted to slap my hand over his mouth. But I was like, I can't even stomach this. This, I'm, this, is, this is making me nauseous. We've just been in the, talking about everything right with the Lord. And it did something. And now we can't turn around and be like, but they did blah, 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 and they completed day and blah, You know, true fasting, Isaiah 58. One of the main things God's like, you want to fast and please me, impress me? Stop trying to placate me and instead do my will. Stop trying to bring me sacrifices and instead bring your heart into alignment with my heart and you'll be blessed. Stop fasting to prove something to me. And here's a true fast. Stop the injustice. And then he says this. Stop with the pointing finger. That's good. That is good. Ananias and Sapphira walked into a climate that was so pregnant with the presence, the manifest presence of God, that God didn't even tolerate it. So he struck them down. And that was an Old Testament, y'all. We got a whole generation that thinks that's embarrassing and we should somehow, we somehow have to explain that and apologize for God because he was being naughty that day. But there was something. But there's people who've done worse things since then and he didn't strike down. 
And I wonder if it wasn't something special going on that was so sacred and so holy that they were messing up. But that's a theory. That's not in there. It's my theory about it. Yeah, so there's, there's a judgment day to come. So as I was fact-checking my gospel, Paul starts in Romans 1. Let me see how many I can, I can quick summarize. Do you think I can do it? I don't. It's, like a, it's asking a lot. Romans 1, everyone knows there's a God. The end. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Yeah, his wrath is revealed because what might be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. You know better. You know God's real. His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen so that men are without excuse. Everyone knows. Number two. Well, there's so much more. I could spend a month in Romans 1. It's so amazing. Romans 1 is one of my favorites because you know what else it says? Everyone's worshiping all the time and you become like what you worship. So when you detach from him, you start to become dead and demonic. When you attach to him, when you worship, and here's the thing, if you were on a desert island, you had no Bible, you had no missionary, you would have enough light to walk in the faith of Abraham. You wouldn't have the assurance of salvation. You wouldn't know about the forgiveness of sins. You wouldn't know the message of the cross. You wouldn't have all the light we have, but you would have as much light as Abraham had. You would have enough to be considered a pre-believer if you would respond. But here's the problem. Almost nobody does. Almost everybody. See, Genesis 3, this is why it takes me a while. Genesis 3, I am so annoyed when people hear the story of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve eat the fruit, sin enters the picture, and death through sin. And now we all are born sinners because they sinned. And then when I talk about it, people go, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven to slap Eve. And I go, are you blind? Did you read what it said? <laughs> Did you? The story's not about you blaming them. The story's about how you are. You are Adam and Eve. I am Adam and Eve. That's the whole point. What does Paul say in Romans 5 later on? One man sinned and therefore death spread to all because all sinned. We all ate the tree. We all ate the fruit. We participated in Adam. I guess I could, there we go. Jumping ahead, Adam and Christ. We all ate, we all participated in Adam. Therefore, we sinned. Therefore, sin and death reigned over us. But if we participate in Christ, instead of sin and death, it's righteousness and life reigning over us. And we reign, it says, in life through Christ. Jumped ahead. So Romans 1, everyone knows, right? Everyone knows, but they don't do. They're sinners. Romans 2, the Jews go, but we're not because we have God's laws. And Paul goes, you've got the laws, but you don't follow them. And then he says more than that. Again, each of these chapters says way more than this. What are we going to do, Romans 3? Oh, no. No, there's none righteous, not one. What's he saying? There's a condition that is normal of all humans. Every one of us is sick with sin. You can be sick with sin in church. You can be sick with sin in the world. Don't matter. You're still sick with sin. And even if you're like Paul and you claim, remember this, Philippians? According to the law of God, faultless. 
Okay, yeah, maybe externally, bro, but not when measured by the true spirit of the law. You were a hater of Christians. You were fighting against the very God you were trying to serve. Romans 3, oh no, what do we do? But God, but now a righteousness has been revealed. Okay, I feel like I'm going so fast. But now a righteous, but now apart from the law, the righteousness from God has been disclosed and it's attested to by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So everybody's in trouble. Oh no, what are we going to do? Paul says, guys, I have really good news. God is giving away righteousness for everyone who trusts Jesus. <sighs> Jew or Gentile. And by the way, to say that the, the Gentiles don't have the law, they do. Jews have the law on tablets of stone. Gentiles have the law that God the Holy Spirit just makes known by giving them a conscience. So everyone's without excuse is the point. I wrote like six pages on verse 25 today, and I thought that's where we we're headed, but I'm going to move scoot past it. Whom God put forward as a helasterion, that's the word I'll probably come back to at the end, the mercy seat is the word he uses. God puts forth Jesus, right? The lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It's plan A. God, Jesus is not plan C, the law plan B, in the garden plan A. No, 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 no. God knows that he wants love and love requires choice. And choice means it's inevitable someone will fall. And the inevitability of someone falling means that before God creates, he chooses to forgive. Jesus is plan A. You are plan A. Your adoption into the family is plan A. It's not a mistake. You were predestined in love before the foundations of the world to be adopted through Jesus. You're not an afterthought. He's not an afterthought. Everything, there's really, there's really one covenant in the Bible that comes in two installments. The one covenant is Jesus. The shadow version of it, it's pointing forward to the, to, it's the beta version called the law, and then the actual 1.0. And there's not an improvement on the 1.0. There's never gonna be a, an improvement on it. What there is is a mop-up operation where his kingdom fully comes. And, but, but I do like to refer to it as one covenant because it's not like God was like, let's try law. Will that work? Oh, that backfired horribly. Uh, new plan. Uh, uh, anyone? And Jesus is like, oh, go. No, that's not how it went. They, they knew what they're doing. But God, okay, so now it's all uh, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you go Romans 4. Yeah, but, but, but what about the Old Testament? And Paul says, oh, what I'm telling you fulfills the Old Testament. Let's go to the Old Testament. In fact, let's go to the man. Let's go to the man. Let's go to the father of all the Jews. Let's go to Abraham. What did he learn? And what, what Paul says in, in, in Romans 4 is faith of Abram. When was he circumcised, Paul says. And you go, uh, chapter 17. Ah, when was he declared righteous? And you go, hmm, chapter 15. Hmm. And he says uh, he was declared righteous, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. And so Paul says, look, 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 look. The law, referenced by circumcision, came later. He was righteous before he ever became Jewish. Abraham is the proof that God's always been making everyone righteous who has heart faith 
in God, whether they were under the law or outside of Israel. And you go, God saved people outside of Israel? Yeah. A couple times they show up in your book and it's surprising. Like Melchizedek, who's that guy? You know, you have, was it Balaam the prophet? What the, what's he doing? Now, I don't know if he's in heaven. It looks like he screwed up at the end of his life. But he was prophesying by the Lord, but he's outside of Israel. Cornelius, the insight Peter gains is God shows no favoritism, but everyone who fears God from any nation, God justifies and he accepts. Interesting insight. Well, that's really Abraham's insight. By the way, David, David was a pre-Christian, right? He didn't know the name Jesus. I remember being in college and my roommate was like, what happens to him to the people who have never heard the name Jesus and received the plan of salvation? I said, they go to hell. Acts is clear. There's no name under heaven given whereby men can be saved, but Jesus. And he goes, but what about the Old Testament saints who never heard the name Jesus? And I said, ah, poop. How were they saved, Tim? And I said, wait a minute, I'm gonna have to go think about this. The more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, they had faith in the person of Jesus, but they had not yet learned the name of Jesus. You can respond to the spirit and person of Jesus, which is what Jesus said Abraham did. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. But you Pharisees who are equipped with all these Bible verses, when the one who wrote the book shows up in the flesh, you try to kill me because you're not children of Abraham, you're children of the devil. And then we got people on these islands. We send missionaries to them and we go, we're here, here's Jesus. And they go, finally, where you guys been? And you go, when you go, what do you mean, where you guys been? Well, like 10 generations ago, we, got, we had these visions in our little tribe about the pale-faced people with God's banana leaves, you know, the Bibles, God, the banana leaves, where you been? We got that vision 10 generations ago. What have you guys been smoking for 10 generations that you took so long? That's a better question, by the way, than how could God save them? So what happens then to those 10 generations that trusted one day God would send those pale-faced people with the banana leaves? Are they all lost because they didn't know the name Jesus? Or are they saved on the same basis of the faith of Abraham and Enoch and Melchizedek and David? Now, is that most people? No, most people are not walking in faith in the little light they have, waiting and, and, and longing to look into the greater light that we have. Most people are not. Most people are headlong in sin, wanting to be headlong in sin, actively resisting the light that they've been given. That's what Romans 1 says, at least. Actively suppressing what they do know. Actively rejecting the light they have and pretending and justifying and rationalizing that rejection. That's most people. Or Peter puts it another way. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the wicked? So just because I'm saying what I'm saying doesn't mean that our work of evangelism and missionary work is not extremely important. We're to plead with people to come home, to repent and believe. Okay, Romans 5, Adam and Christ. Adam plunges us all into sin. Now, I've heard some crazy stuff, guys. You wanna hear a dumb idea that I, that I found in a huge commentary in, in seminary? I'm not gonna tell you the last name of the guy but it was one of the big reputable guys. Big old fat commentary on Romans. And I'm reading in there and he says, you will never be judged for your sins. You will either be judged for Adam's sin, which by the way, you want that because you'll only be judged for his one sin of eating from the tree 
or you'll be judged for Jesus' act of giving his life. You will never stand before God and give an account of, of your, your deeds, but only which representative you're in. So he has a legal vision. His whole gospel is legal. It's forensic righteousness is what we call it in, in theological circles. It all has to do with guilt in a court. And that matters. By the way, people who believe that, that's why you baptize babies. Because those babies are guilty of Adam's sin. So if you don't baptize those babies, those babies go to hell. I don't believe that, by the way. That's what they believe. And this is why they believe that. Because those babies are counted sinners in Adam. And if we'll baptize them, then they'll be counted righteous in Christ. I don't believe that. I believe that all die because all sin. That we're not legally represented by Adam. Adam was the source of an infection that we all inherit. And that at some point, very, very young, we actively participate in and become guilty of ourselves. All die because all sin. Romans 5 is very clear about this. But here's the deal. The vision in Romans 5, Romans 5 will freak you out and change your mind about some stuff if you spend enough time in it. We in the church have more faith in the power of sin than the power of the gospel. And it's got to change. Because Paul says, one man's sin plunged everyone into sin and death. But, but it was after, he goes, the grace that came through Jesus is so much greater than the power of sin and death. Because the grace came after many, 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 many sins. And it was able to, it was able to overwhelm and overcome the power of sin. So that through Jesus, all who are in Christ will live in victory over sin and death in this life. And then he says a lot more, but I'm gonna, I'll, come, I'll try to come back to it in a minute. Then in Romans 6, he goes, well, shoot, let's just real quick, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Memorize it, please. Please just memorize Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. There's our past, present, and future. Our past is Jesus died and was raised. In Jesus, we're both declared righteous, he imputes righteousness to us, and he imparts. These are, I guess I'm just deciding that you guys are gonna learn big boy theology. Imputes righteousness means he counts you as righteous. You might be imperfect in a bunch of ways, but legally, it, you're 100% in. None of that's gonna disqualify you. You're being made holy, but the whole time, you're not falling in and out of salvation, you're not falling in and out of holiness, you're not falling in and out of righteousness. You are declared righteous, permanently righteous. You have a robe of righteousness on you that you didn't earn, you didn't build, you didn't make, you don't improve upon. You receive it, and you live in it, and your heart is being changed. That's the that's the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Then the impartation is his actual spirit is poured out in you. His heart is put in you. His mind is put in you. The graces, 
The power of the Spirit is putting the actual energies of God himself within your physical body and your soul and your spirit. Your spirit is in union with his Holy Spirit. And as you learn to think with him, partner with him, yield to him, let him flow, it begins to come out of your spirit and heal your soul and affect your soul. And it even can heal your body. That's the impartation of... Peter says you are participants, you are partakers of the divine nature. The Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't call it sanctification. You know what they call it? They call it deification. They talk about the divine energies. That's what we were talking about earlier. Charismatics call it the presence of God or the spirit of God. The Orthodox Church just calls it the divine energies or the grace. I like to say like faith sets an end, like a faith is like raising an electrical lightning rod in response to the word, I raise my faith, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and that's grace, and the machine runs. Wireless electricity, like Nikola Tesla wanted to invent. He did, he wanted to invent wireless electricity, not just wireless signals, wireless electricity. And I was like, we got it, it's in Christ. Since we're in Christ, since we're in a state of grace, did you hear that? We have been justified, we are righteous, we are in a state of grace. We, we rejoice. We're in a, how does, it, how does he exactly say it? In this grace in which we stand. Ah, and I have reason to believe we all will be received in Graceland. Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. That last part of the Memphis, Tennessee, that's not right. But the reason Paul Simon wanted to write that song is he was yearning for a homeland where he can live in a state of grace. I'm, I'm, I'm in a state of grace, you guys. I'm not under the law. I'm not in a performance orientation. I'm not married to someone who's hard to please. I'm in a state of grace. I'm standing in grace. I'm in a waterfall that moves with me. And if I mess up, he still moves with me. And then he redirects me and he washes me off because I'm in a state of grace. Do you understand the glory of this covenant we're in? It's just a little more than some people want to be able to allow themselves to believe. But now that we're in a state of grace, Romans 6. I, uh, should I keep on sinning? <laughs> and Paul face palms and he says, No, may it never be. God forbid. You died to sin. How can you go on living to it? And you go, wait a minute, when did we die to sin? I mean, I remember Jesus died, but when did we die? And then he says, in your baptism. You were buried with Christ in baptism. You were raised up with him in your resurrection. You, an old you died. A new you was born. This is old hat. I yell this all in here all the time. So Romans 6. Dead to sin, alive to God. Then Romans 7, the first bit, dead to law, what it's like, life in the spirit. No condemnation. Obviously, my handwriting is degenerating. Romans 6, dead to sin, alive to God. So offer the, since you now rightfully belong to him, reckon yourself dead to sin. What do you mean reckon yourself dead to sin, right? So reckon is an accounting word. So you're, you're looking at your bills and you're looking at your checks and you're making sure that your account matches what's really in the, in, that your records of the account match what's in the account. And Paul says, uh, look what's in your account. You are dead to sin. You don't think you're dead to sin. You don't feel like you're dead to sin. Your body's telling you you're alive to sin. Sometimes your feelings are lying to you, and but that's not the truth. You are dead to sin. 
You've put your faith in Jesus. You went down into the water and said your big yes. You get up in the morning. The Spirit has, has sealed you, and you're in, so you are dead to sin. Now I want you to think according to what is true. I want you to learn to agree with the truth instead of agreeing with the lie that tells you that you're very much still a slave to sin. You are not a slave to sin. You've been set free. I feel like I need to prove that to you slightly. We know, verse 6 of Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we might no longer be slaves to sin. So you also, verse 11, must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's a fiction, and we hope that if we just believe this fiction long enough, we'll make it true? No, because it's already true, and Paul's frustrated that you don't already believe it. God can take all the Israelites out of slavery in a day, but it sometimes takes him 40 years to get all the slavery out of the Israelites, right? And Paul's saying, guys, stop saying you're sinners. Stop saying your heart is desperate. Stop quoting Jeremiah 17, 9 and pretending like it applies to you just because Calvin has taught bad theology to you. Stop it. Your heart was desperately wicked and deceitful beyond all cure, and no one could know it. That's why he died. That was the heart you inherited from Adam, but that's definitely not the nature you inherited from Jesus. So stop accusing Jesus' nature in you of being deceitful and wicked. Your righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord if he were measuring your efforts to save yourself. But I guarantee you the good works he created you for in Christ Jesus, he does not receive as filthy rags, but as pleasing to the Lord. And you can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You can please and honor God and bring him glory with a life of devotion to him. And he will not cast it out of his sight and call it filthy rags because it was empowered by his very presence and spirit within you. It's like, come on, man, you're undermining godliness because you think that's going to promote humility. If we give Jesus credit for our good works, it'll be humility. If we stop pretending his truth hasn't set us free and we start giving him credit for it and walking up in it. And like, there's so much more we could be walking in, but we build a theology where we have more faith in the sin nature we inherited from Adam than in the power of the spirit that he says has overcome the law of sin and death so that we're no longer slaves to sin. And then the end of Romans 7, what does it feel like to be under the law in the weakness of the flesh? Who is the I of Romans 7, 14 through 25? I wrote a whole paper about this in college. Who is this divided I? I want to please the Lord, but I really want to sin and everything sucks. Amen. That is a man who is going through the motivation, condemnation, rededication cycle. And as long as he keeps living under law, he'll stay in that cycle. As long as he's still living under law, thinking it's something he's doing for God, he'll stay in that cycle. When he finally wakes up to the finished work of Jesus and the grace he's under, something different happens and the power of the Spirit comes and furnishes his faith in the finished work of Christ. <sighs> in Romans 8 now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the principle of the Spirit of life in Christ has defeated the principle of sin and death that was at work in the weakness of the flesh. For what the law was powerless to do because the flesh couldn't follow the law, God did by, I'm just quoting Romans 8, God did by putting that whole system to death in Jesus' death so that now you can serve God in the new way of the Spirit. When you're in under law, 
you're in the flesh. When you're in, under grace, it puts you in the spirit. When you're in the flesh, you're in the weakness of the flesh. Of course, you're going to live in Romans 7, 14 through 25. It doesn't mean Christians can't choose to visit Romans 14, 7, 25. Have you ever been there? Have you ever read that and said, boy, that feels like what I'm living through right now? I have. But those were seasons when I was either in the flesh or in legalism. The seasons when I'm in grace and I'm making much of his blood, making much of his covenant, making much of him, making much of his love, looking into his eyes instead of into my problems and my sin and my soul. Help me, Lord, you know? That's when I grow. I have tons of stuff I want to say about Romans 5. Um, here, here's a tricky thought. Here's a tricky thought. I want you to pay close attention to the tense in Romans 5. Past, present, future tense. Pay very close attention to the past, present, and future tense in Romans 5. While we were still weak at the right time, this is verse 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love. That's interesting. Why would God have to prove his love to us? God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? Did you notice we just switched past and future? We have been justified by his blood. We will be saved from the wrath of God. You have not yet been saved from the wrath of God, but you will be. What you have been is reconciled to God and made righteous. If you walk in this and you finish and you persevere to the end, if you are an overcomer, to all who overcomes, I'll give the crown of life. If you walk in this thing, if, if his grace is not poured out on you in vain, but you follow through, you finish well, then he will save you from the wrath of God. I just think it's extremely important to pay close, pay close attention to the details in the text. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death. Okay, you were God's enemies. Jesus' death while you were his enemy whew, made you right with God. How much more surely than having been reconciled by his death, will we be saved through his life? Guys, if when you hated God, Jesus' death turned your heart around and made you his friend, how much more now that you are God's friend? Future tense. How much more will the life of Jesus save you from the future judgment day now that you are his friend? But I, I'm super pumped about it. I'm, I'm super pumped about this. Like I'm fact-checking my gospel. And I spent, I spent a good couple, three hours just obsessing over the Greek word hilasterion in Romans 3.25. Well, yeah, because, I mean, John Piper says that's the most important verse in the whole New Testament. And he and I understand that verse very differently from each other, but that's not enough. That, that's, we've had enough for tonight. Uh, I, I want to say this real quick. This next generation coming up, when they look at church websites and all they see is we're advertising a mood, they roll their eyes because they're hungry for deep, well-thought-out, very articulate, intensely scriptural explanations of rich theology. And all they see is a vibe, a mood. Oh, we're just, we're just authentic. We're just spirit-filled. 
We're just passionate. And they're like, passionate about what though? What do you think? What do you believe? What do you practice? What do you expect to happen in human history? What is the basis of your beliefs? What is the content of your prayers? It's extremely important to me that you spend a lot of time in the Bible because it will start to change the way you pray. We pray very unbiblically. I'm gonna step on some toes. We pray to Jesus, we pray to the Spirit, and sometimes we pray to the Father. The, the way the New Testament prays, every time that I can think of, they pray to the Father, in the Spirit, through Jesus, every time. Every time. Chapel in college, I heard a, I heard a girl say, Father, I just thank you so much for dying on the cross for us. And I just wish that everyone had snapped their eyes open and said, eh. the father never died on the cross for you. That didn't happen. One of my grandpas, he's in heaven, but he was a false teacher on this stuff. He said we were only allowed to pray to Jesus, that Jesus is Yahweh, and he had basically a oneness theology. He, he, he didn't. Paul says there's a time coming when Jesus will hand over the kingdom to the father who is greater than all. Now that stretches the Trinitarian formula, but again, Trinity is not the Bible. Trinity is our very faithful effort to preserve the careful language of yes. the Bible. Yes. Yeah. Jesus is divine, but he is not the Father. Those distinctions matter. He is God's Son. He is God's Word. He is the wisdom of God. He is the Messiah of God. He is the Son of David. And he's the firstborn of many brothers. Doctrine of the Trinity is there to help protect us to, in order to say what the Bible always says. Jesus is eternally the Son of God. He is uncreated. He is light of light. He is a God of God. There we go. I'll say it that way. But he is not the Father. The Father never submits to Jesus. Jesus submits to the Father. Je the Father didn't die for your sins. The Spirit wasn't crucified. Jesus wasn't poured out on Pentecost. Yeah. Yeah. You're allowed to pray to Jesus. I'm encouraging you to not stay with Jesus because his whole intention, his greatest desire is to bring you into face-to-face -face contact with his Abba, with his Father. His God. He says, I'm returning to my God and your God. Where, where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where does it say you are? At the right hand of the Father. The point of what Jesus has done is to bring you home so the Father could have you as his daughter. Don't, it's fine to talk to Jesus. I talk to Jesus. I talk to the Holy Spirit. See, the whole Trinity is present in your prayer. You're in Jesus and he's in you and he's brought you into this face-to-face -face with the Father and the Spirit is empowering this flow of love. Augustine talked about the Father and the Son in this eternal embrace of, of love and the Spirit, it, he, he called the Spirit the love that's flowing between them. Yet we're in a state of grace, as I said earlier,